Welcome to Business Owners Radio. Business Owners Radio, where established business owners get the latest insights, strategies, and practices to grow a sustainably profitable business. And now, taking care of business, your hosts, Craig Moen and Shai Gilad. Welcome to Business Owners Radio, Episode 51. Our guest today is Jonathan Raymond, here to talk about his new book, Good Authority, How to Become the Leader Your Team is Waiting For. Jonathan is the former CEO and chief brand officer of Emith, the coaching company behind the famous book, and launched the advisory firm Refound in 2015 to focus his passion on culture, personal growth, and the new kind of conversation leaders can have at work. Jonathan is going to tell us how the frameworks he has developed from 20 years of working with business owners and leaders around the world can help you inspire both personal and professional growth throughout your organization. Good morning, Jonathan. Welcome to Business Owners Radio. Hey, Shai. Glad to be on. Thanks for having me. We're so excited about your new book, Good Authority. What inspired you to write this book? It's a book that I feel like maybe similar to a lot of people, I feel like it's a book that was in me for probably a decade. And I decided over the winter to try to capture the heart of the experience that I had being in leadership positions, both as the CEO and CBO of Emith, but also just in my career, you know, being a small business partner, small business owner, working in small businesses in different industries, and just try to capture what I hopefully learned over a 15, 18 year leadership career up to this point, and then the work that I'm doing with clients now. Yeah. And I love sort of the subtopic here, how to become the leader your team is waiting for. Mm. And, you know, the topic of personal and professional growth and how those two things blend together, what does that mean to you? It's something that, you know, oftentimes I'll say that I was moonlighting for 20 years where I was a kind of business guy by day. I went, you know, graduated from law school and worked in the technology world in the dot-com, well, one of the dot-com eras in San Francisco and, and then, you know, worked in the business coaching world for the last kind of half a decade And by night and on the weekends, I was doing my own personal growth, you know, deeply studying meditation and different forms of practice and yoga and emotional growth and personal growth work and, you know, basically anything I could get my hands on. But I was really split between those two things. I was kind of being business guy by day and personal growth guy by night. And the work that I'm doing now which comes out of my own experience is what if the both of those worlds are what if that's one world and not two? What if we do personal growth at work? What does that even look like? And that go out of bounds in the context of being a boss or being an employee. And I'm finding a really interesting conversation that CEOs that I work with and managers are able to have a conversation that bridges. And to me, it's a really timely moment to do that because the conversation around culture and and the desire for a meaningful place to work is hotter than it's ever been. And I think it's only getting more so. I love the way that that comes together in so many places throughout the book. And you tell this great story about your daughter under the topic of ownership. You know, my daughter, Livia, she's not exactly the best when it comes to, you know, household chores. And we're, you know, we're kind of in that phase, you know, she's 11. And we were just, you know, like a lot of parents of kids, daughters and sons that age, trying to incorporate her more into the household routine. And, you know, we were struggling and we just tried all the different 
I say in the book, the carrots and sticks of parenting and, you know, the things that we tried. And there was just this moment where we just said, you know what, let's back off. Let's see what she finds on her own. And there was this moment where my wife came to me and she says, hey, come, come check this out. And I walked down into the kitchen and there was my daughter, you know, doing the dishes on her own, sort of singing her favorite song. I don't remember what it was. It was like a Bruno Mars song or something, singing her favorite song with a dish towel on her shoulder, doing the dishes. And I was just like, what is going on here? Like, what is happening? And so I asked her, and I, you know, of course, I was in the middle of writing the book. And so I, I wanted to know what happened. And long story short, or shorter, she said, you know, I was just in my room, and it just felt messy to me. And I know you guys have been talking with me about doing these kinds of things. And I went in your room, in mom and dad's room, and it just felt better in there. I liked how it felt. And I decided I want to make my room like that. And so before she had been in the kitchen, she was cleaning her room and organizing all of her stuff and her stuff to Hannibal's and, and her closet and putting everything away. And so it's not every day like that, but it was this parent's dream come true. And, and the point that I try to make in Good Authority is... It wasn't because we told her what to do or we created the right incentives or the right punishments, right? You know, not that we, you know, we're not a punitive household, but it was in the contrast, right? She got to feel for herself, hey, this is the world as it could be. This is the world that I've created for myself. I don't like the world that I've created for myself. I want to change it. And that's the spirit of ownership that we're all trying to get in our you know, children and the people who work for us who are not our children, that in the you know, teams that we coach, clients, we're trying to get the person that we're trying to help, if you're in a helping role, being an authority, you're in a helping role, whether you think about that way or not, is what are the dynamics of being in a helping role? And I think it's giving people that contrast between the world that they're currently inhabiting and a possible future that you see that you think is better than the one that they're living in and helping them see the contrast and then finding that internal motivation to make the changes they need. Whatever that personal space is, just like your daughter's room, that's showing up in work. Mm -hmm. And so that to me is almost where you have the blend between personal and professional growth. Because whatever those messes are that you're carrying around in your personal life, whether it's relationship management, whether it's money management, whether it's organization, those show up in your work and, and they wreak havoc. And it's almost impossible to separate trying to get control over one without trying to get control of the other. Exactly. And I think that we've been doing it. The theory that I'm offering is we've been doing it in reverse sequence. This is what I was doing, you know, is, well, I'm going to work on myself and then I'm going to go to work and be a better leader or I'm going to be a better manager. Or I'm going to be a better employee. And I think it's the other way around. I think it's learning how we're showing up at work and seeing, wow, I show up late to meetings all the time. What's the impact on other people of me doing that? I never speak up in front of a room of people unless I know exactly the right answer. Why do I do that? You know, I really struggle having a tough conversation with somebody where I'm afraid that they're going to metaphorically push back at me uh, and get angry with me. You could call those work issues. Those are personal issues, right? The way that we show up at work, it's not one-to-one. Sometimes we show up the opposite way at work that we do at home, but there's a connection. There's always a connection between the way that we show up in our professional life, whether you're the business owner or a frontline employee. There's a way that you're showing up And I believe your responsibility as a manager, as a business owner, as a CEO in the modern world is to show people, hey, here's how I see you showing up. It's not the end of the world. You're not fired because sometimes you show up uninspired. But I want to have a conversation with you about why you seem to be uninspired. What's going on for you? Oh, you know, I don't really feel like I have a place in this organization. Is that a business issue or a personal one? It's both. 
right? That goes to our sense of belonging. It goes to a sense of who our value and how do we contribute and what's our role on a team and what's our role in an organization, which is not a family, but certainly has a lot of you know overlapping dynamics. We don't have a professional self and a personal self. We only have us and we show up differently in different parts of our life. And your book captures this idea so well. And it's so elusive for people to understand, well, what is emotional intelligence? How do I hold that? You know, and what if it's simply what you said, just understanding the impact that you have on others and why that matters? I think that's a huge part of it. And I think in particular, as a business owner or CEO, it's very easy to go blind, not because you're a bad person, not because you should go in the corner and wear a dunce cap. It's just the nature of the role. People are going to tell you what you want to hear to one degree or another. And so understanding that there's structural authority and emotional authority, right? And I love that, you know, bringing in the emotional intelligence. My question is how, right? Like, how do you be emotionally? That's wonderful. Yes, we should all be more emotionally intelligent. What does that look like? with an underperforming employee? How do you talk with them in a way that's emotionally intelligent or emotionally mature in a way that inspires growth and doesn't trigger them to get defensive or shut down that isn't coming from a place of hypocrisy where you're asking somebody to do something that you don't yourself do? That's emotional intelligence in action. And if the book does that, well, you know, I'll call it a victory. Yeah, I would describe it as a textbook on applied emotional intelligence. Great. Can you write that on the back of the book? I want to add, I want to add that testimonial. <laughs> happy, happy to do that. Jonathan, so many of our clients are wrestling between people management and financial management being the largest portions of their challenge. And many times I've had the question to me, you know, I really don't want to manage people. Can I have someone else do that for me? Mm. And what I'm hearing is, this is your business. Your business represents a part of you and you have to be a part of it. You have to jump in, get into that pool and start swimming with them. I think there's a choice in there. I think it's both in the sense that, you know, I've worked with or let's say I haven't worked with, but I had phone calls with business owners say, look, I don't I just don't want to manage people. I want to create this structured thing that just operates. And I don't don't want to actually even have employees. I just want to work with contractors and we're all remote. And, you know, and that's how it's going to be. And I say, great. And they say, well, but I want to create a great culture. And I said, not great, right? <laughs> you have to choose, right? If you want to create a great place to work, if, if meaning matters to you and people feeling like their job supports their life and help, then it's not optional, right? Then you have to engage. That doesn't mean managing everybody in the organization. That means having a healthy organizational structure. I was talking with a business owner the other day in Arizona, and he said, well, I don't have time to do one-on-ones with everybody. And I said, really? Well, how many people are reporting to you? And he said, well, 26, <laughs> and, I, and I said, well, okay, let's start there, right? Like you should have three people reporting to you or maybe five. And I think when you hear people say, well, I don't want to be a people manager, it's because they think they're supposed to be managing everybody in the business, right? And that's it, obviously not the case. You have to manage a few people and here's what they're avoiding. They're avoiding accountability with one or two or maybe three people, senior leaders in the organization to hold them accountable for holding everybody else and the people management space. And, you know, you got to ask yourself if you're a business owner or you don't have to ask yourself, but I would invite you to ask yourself if somebody said to you, Craig or Shive said, like, the only thing that I want from this business is to make money. You wouldn't believe them. You know that that's not true. You've talked with hundreds of business owners and you know that people go into business to express a passion. Of course, the financial freedom is part of it. It's a deep part of it. But that's not the reason people launch businesses, 
right? It's not a financially savvy thing to do for a really long time. You do that for those other reasons that are based in value, based in meaning, based in who you want to be in the world, based on a conversation that you want to have that you don't think anybody else is having in your industry. That's why we start businesses. And the refrain that I don't want to be a people manager, well, guess what? If you're an owner, you're managing people already. You can't avoid it, right? You're managing people because they see how you relate with managing people. And guess what? They're learning from you, right? They're watching your hesitancy around dealing with people. That's going to show up in the culture. Well, we work in a place where we're hesitant to have tough conversations with people. You've just created the company culture. You've created it passively. You've created it unconsciously, but you've created it nonetheless. That's like being a parent and saying, well, I don't want to raise a kid, right? Like, well, <laughs> that's an option. Have, Come on. It's is not, that an option? <laughs> that's, not, that's not an option, right? And again, your employees are not your children. You're, they're not your children. They're not your children. But you have an organization and you're in the leader in that organization. You're in the leadership position. You're in the authority position. You don't get to not raise your kids. Well, you can, but you watch what happens if you don't raise your kids. There will be consequences and you can't opt out. And why would you really want to? And I think that's the place to focus is if you hear yourself saying, I don't want to manage people, that's fine. We've all been there. I just want the work to get done. But there's something else going on. There's another conversation that you haven't yet had with yourself. Talk to your coach, talk to a mentor, talk to a friend and and get underneath that. Why? Don't be satisfied with the surface level response that most people in the world, oh, you know, life is hard. It's busy and managing people is hard. Yeah, you know, that's true. But there's something else that's far more true and far more rich to discover underneath that. That's a great analogy. And I know in your writings, you talk a lot about the habits and behaviors. And how would you rank some of those habits and behaviors as far as if you had a choice of the first three, where would the focus be? Psychological safety. That is the thing that underlies, you know, we don't like to talk, well, some of us like to talk about it a lot. And the conversation is warming these days. You see a lot more people talking about this. But psychological safety is the most important quality. Not safe as in no risk, not safe as in you're never going to get fired or a consequence or you have a job for life or anything like that. Psychological safety, meaning this is a place where people can take a risk to go outside of the normal way of doing things and not get punished for it. And not even in a subtle way, right? They don't get managed around that you can go to your boss and say, hey, you know, I just feel like we have too many projects right now and I'm feeling lost. And being able to work for somebody who doesn't tell you to deal with it or doesn't shoot you down and isn't willing to engage with you in a conversation, psychological safety, not handholding, right? Here's the thing. If you make it psychologically safe, you earn the right to hold people accountable, If you don't make it psychologically safe, you have no right to hold people accountable. And therein lies no risk is going to be spent. Exactly. And without risk, there is never growth. It's an interesting combination. One of the things that business owners say to me all the time is they say, look, I have systems, I have processes, I have policy, SOP. I've got a lot of stuff going on in the business. You know, most of the clients I work with are sort of out of that initial stage of building a business. Although the culture ideas and values, I think, is just as relevant for solopreneurs. And we can talk about that if you guys would like. But what they say to me is they say, well, but at the end, there's still a person there, right? There's still a person who has to deal with that and who has to innovate. And what I want from the people that work for me is I want them to see things and break them even when they're working, right? I want to be surrounded by people who say, hey, yeah, we have this element in our sales process and it works okay, but oh, what if we did this? 
What if we change that? So what if we move these steps around or in marketing or in finance? Hey, you know, we've been doing budgeting this particular way and it works. But what if we looked at a forecast through this whole new method that I was reading about on the Internet that I think is so interesting? Those are the people that we want in our organization. And the way that you cultivate that is by making it safe to take those kinds of risks. And if you don't make it safe, you'll never get it. You'll never get that kind of innovation because it's not safe. It's not safe. And those people will eventually leave in their heart of hearts. They've left already in most cases, and they're just waiting for that next good opportunity where they can do that, where they have some autonomy and they can try new things. The dynamics are simple, but they're hard to embody. Jonathan, what can the business owner do? What steps to make it safe for that to happen? The single most powerful tool that we've developed at ReFound that people can use is something that I call the accountability dial. And the accountability dial is a tool for avoiding what I call spontaneous management combustion, right? Spontaneous spontaneous management combustion is watching somebody do something that you don't like and not talking about it, seeing it again and not talking about it, seeing it again and not talking about it, and then blowing up with that person. And blowing up at that person doesn't have to be yelling and screaming, right? It can be managing around them. It can be going home to your spouse and complaining about them for weeks on end, right? That's spontaneous management combustion. So the accountability dial says, hey, when you see something, say something, right? To borrow that phrase. If you see somebody showing up late to work more than once, you say to them, hey, what's going on? I noticed you came in late a couple days this week. It's not the end of the world, but I just wanted to have a conversation with you. Or, you know, I noticed some typos in some emails that you've been sending out. Is everything all right? And engaging with people really early on. Hey, I noticed in meetings that you tend to be really reserved. Maybe there's something else going on. I'd love to know about what's going on for you because you have great ideas. Rather than watching these behaviors that we see all the time as business owners, You know, I was working with a guy who was talking about his customer experience all the time, and he was delivering a lousy customer experience to me. And I said something to him, right? I'm a sole proprietor, right? And I said, hey, you know, I'm paying you a lot of money for this service, and you talk a lot about customer service. And I believe you in your heart of hearts, but when your assistant emails me the same thing three times, then it's not a good customer experience. And I don't want him to say, sorry about that. I want to be like, wow, thank you so much for pointing that out to me. I'm going to deal with that. And those are those kinds of dynamics. Speaking to what you see early in the process and then slowly but surely turning up the heat on that behavior and having consequences. You know, I was talking with a business owner the other day and he said, well, I'm really great when it comes to accountability. And I said, oh, really? That's wonderful. That's great. I don't meet many owners who are really great when it comes to accountability. And he was talking about something that was going wrong. And I said, oh, what were the consequences for that person doing that thing? And he said, consequences? What do you mean? <laughs> and, I, and I said, well, how do you do accountability without consequences? And then, of course, the floodgates opened and he said, oh, you know, I, I don't know. I think I'm terrible at it, actually. And I'm terrible at it with my kids and whatever. And it's like we say these things that are just not true. He's a really sweet guy and a good client. And, but, you know, we laugh about it. But there is no accountability without consequences. It's not about putting people on notice or warning or any kind of thing punitive. You're the boss. You don't have to be punitive or energize your authority, but you have to speak. You have to open your mouth and say, hey, this behavior over here, it's not problematic today, but I just want to give you a little bit of insight into how it could become problematic later. And then you earn the right to say to somebody, and that's how the accountability dial works, it's five steps, to increase the intensity and say, hey, you know, I feel like we've talked about this a couple of times, and I don't really feel like you're taking it seriously. I got to turn up the heat here a little bit, right? And there's a compassionate way to do accountability that's very direct 
doesn't take a whole bunch of time. You don't have to go home and complain to your spouse about why employee X did that again today. You can act on it in real time. And it goes right to this place of psychological safety because fundamentally, if people know where they stand with you, they feel psychologically safe or it's one of the elements. They don't know where they stand with you or they're guessing, oh, I think Jonathan's upset with me and he's not telling me. That's not psychologically safe. You know, it it reminds me of that great quote. I think it was Kim Scott who said, what you tolerate, you teach. Mm, Beautiful. And we do this and we don't even realize we're doing it. So, I mean, you know, it sounds like your process is not just around generating self-awareness around this, but really giving people specific tools to change this dynamic. Yes. And to go back to one of the things we talked about earlier, you know, we use these words, you know, coaches, consultants, advisors, whatever you call yourself, mentor. We use these words like transparency, vulnerability and accountability. But how do you actually do that right with your team? So as an example, I was talking with a guy who owns a nutrition company and he said, you know, I feel really and this is very common, right? It's kind of a version of the imposter syndrome, right? Very common among business owners, all of us. He said, you know, I feel like my team's not really good when it comes to kind of a sense of urgency around communication with customers and things get dropped and they don't really manage their calendar very well. And I said, oh, well, you know, why do you think that is? And he said, well, honestly, I think I'm not very good at that. And I feel really awkward holding them accountable for changing that behavior because I think I'm not very good at it. And I said, have you ever told them that? And I could see the light bulb go off in his head. He said, well, what you mean tell them that I'm not good at it? And I said, yeah, tell them that you're not good at it. You know that you're not good at it. And it makes you feel uncomfortable to hold them accountable. And I said to him, do you think they don't know that about you already? And he said, of course. they." And I said, well, you just let them know that you know that about you. That's transparency. That's vulnerability. And that's authenticity all wrapped into one. And I've seen business owners avoid that for 30 years, avoid that conversation to say to him, hey, guys, I know you probably know this about me, but I am a control freak. Right. And we can joke about it a little bit, but here's how it shows up in specific ways. And I want to change that about, but I'm going to probably screw it up 10 more times this week. That's transparency. That's vulnerability. That's authenticity. It's not about any grand gestures. That's the red herring in this industry that I know you guys are trying to change. And I am too. It's not about grand pronouncements, big vision statements, and you know, lofty goals. Those are wonderful. Those are great. You should do all of those things. But as you said, it's in the way that we walk the halls. It's in the way we respond to difficult moments. It's in the way we deal with conflict. I love, you know, Simon Sinek uses this great, I don't know if he says it anymore, but I was at this conference and he said, you know, imagine you're in the waiting room and you're, you know, employee of a company and, or you're the receptionist and the call comes through and, and, you know, the boss is in the corner office and the receptionist puts on a hold and says, Hey, it's Tom calling for you. And the boss whispers back to the receptionist, tell him I'm not here. Right. And it's like you just sanctioned lying. You just said lying, dissembling, moving the ball, like hiding. You just said that's part of your company culture. And you've now simultaneously given everyone else the permission to do so. Yeah. And then you try to turn around and hold people accountable for being honest and direct. Like that's literally crazy. But so many of these habits that we have, we don't realize we're doing them. Right. I think in my view, and I may, I may be naive, Shai and Craig, but I think, you know, in my view, that owner is increasingly a dinosaur in our world. Like, I don't think those owners are going to survive, especially with millennials. Millennial, I think, is a state of mind, not an age range. You know, I think there's a desire for realness and transparency and not talk about realness and transparency, but the actual thing. Hey, I screwed that up and I don't know why I screwed that up. And I'm really disappointed in myself and you guys should be, too. That's transparency, right? Not these ideas or value statements. You know, I think we risk repackaging 
these new ideas in a new form of the old thing, right? Which is the, the infallible boss who has the answer and the authority figure on high. Like that world is dead. It's, it's, it doesn't work anymore. And it doesn't work if you want to have innovative employees who are in the process of revolutionizing your business when you're on vacation, right? That's what you want. And you will not get there unless you're willing to have a peer group, have somebody in your life who says, hey, Jonathan, you know, you talk about this thing a lot, but I noticed you did this and go, oh, no, you're totally right. Uh, Wow. That was like lemon juice into an open wound, but I got to change it. So I think there's so much in your book and in your teachings, and I'm sure within the work you do at Refound that can help people really incorporate and move beyond theory into action. And that's where I think there's so much value. Hmm. I really want to ask you one more thing, which is about, you talk about three archetypes of an owner, fighter, fixer, or friend. Hmm. Can you touch on that a little bit for us? What I saw was that there's a lot of discussion out there about strengths and doubling down on strengths. And then there's, of course, a whole thread on working on weaknesses and blind spots. And to me, that's oversimplifying who we are as human beings to put us in these strengths and weaknesses buckets. To me, a strength and a weakness is the same thing, right? If you're really willful and you're good at moving things forward, there's a weakness that's embedded in that. You don't have a strength and a weakness. You're you. And you being you has both good qualities and not so good qualities, has positive impacts and not so positive impacts. And so what I tried to do is develop this, and there's a quiz on the site for the fixer fighter friend to find which one, and maybe we can throw a link to that in the show notes. But the fixer fighter and friend, if we go them a little bit out of order, the fighter is kind of the leader with the owner who's always got new ideas, easily distracted by new things, but is deeply connected to a future vision. That leader I call the fighter who's never short for new ideas, never short for motivation, is always good at kind of rallying and moving things forward and and fighting for the cause, so to speak. The fixer is the one who's really the craftsman, the attention to detail, doesn't let anything go out the door unless it's perfect, unless it's right. You know, Watt looks at every email, metaphorically or literally. People who really care about excellence and the standard of work at a higher level than the fighter might. It's not that the fighter doesn't care, but that's not their primary orientation. The primary orientation of the fighter is to move things forward, to get the idea out into the world, to focus on marketing and sales. Whereas the fixer isn't necessarily so focused on that. That's not their orientation. It's not micromanaging, but it's really focusing on the craft and the customer experience down to the nitty gritty, which is, again, wonderful but can also disconnect from the future vision of the company and can leave the organization feeling dry. And then the friend is an archetype, which we've probably all experienced, is the person who says, oh, we're all a family here, right? We're all on the same team and uses a lot of very collegial language and tries to literally or figuratively flatten the org chart to make it seem like they're not in charge. And again, a very positive quality to that of trying to create a friendly, warm and welcoming environment and friend led cultures have that quality. But the downside is friends really struggle with accountability. Because if you pretend that your organization is flat, and it isn't because you're the owner, if you pretend we're all on the same team, well, how do you hold people accountable? It becomes very, very difficult. And so those three archetypes, honestly, I'm, I'm really developing them. The book was the kind of the first version of them and developing because we move and shift, right? I consider my primary archetype of those three the fighter, but sometimes I'm in fixer mode. Sometimes I'm in friend mode. And they're not these fixed categories. They're archetypes and archetypes we can move in and out of. Hopefully, I don't want people to use it as like, oh, I'm a this 
and I can never change it, right? That's so much of the- They can do the annoying thing they do with Myers-Briggs. Exactly. Well, I'm an IMTP. It's like, well, you know, maybe maybe you are in some ways, but right now you're being something else. (laughs) Well, thanks for giving me permission as I sit here sweating and shifting over, my gosh, I'm guilty of all of these things. Mm. Yeah. And I, I think that's the thing. And the feedback that I love the most is when people read that, they say, you know, Jonathan, this is a really forgiving way to think about leadership styles. And I think, yes, victory. <laughs> that's a moral victory for me because I don't want to be part of another dysfunctional way of looking or shadow based. There are many of them, thousands of them kind of shadow based ways of looking at leadership. And the way I think about it is that there are impacts that we have that take us closer to where we want to be. And there are impacts that we have that take us further away. How can we understand ourselves better as leaders, as authority figures, as hopefully helpers of the people that work for us? And and hopefully the archetype system helps with that. Jonathan, I want to thank you again for coming on the show today. We had such a great conversation We're so excited about this new book, and I'm sure our listeners are just going to love it. So thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, Thanks, Shai. Thanks, Greg. Thanks so much for having me on. It's been a joy. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? There's two things people can do. You can go to refound.com and I have a free email crash course on some of these ideas and going further with it. And then also I would invite people to take the fixer fighter friend quiz. I think people will find that really interesting and it's, it's fun. There's 12 questions. It takes probably two minutes and you'll find a link to that on our website. And I think we'll probably put a link in the show notes as well. Our guest today has been Jonathan Raymond, owner of refound and author of good authority, how to become the leader your team is waiting for. You can learn more about Jonathan and get links to his book and other free offers in our show notes at businessownersradio.com. Thank you for joining us on Business Owners Radio. We hope you enjoyed today's show. As always, you can read more about each episode along with links and offers in the show notes on our website, businessownersradio.com. We want to hear your feedback. Please leave comments on this show or suggestions for upcoming episodes. Tell your fellow business owners about the show and, of course, you would love the stars and comments on iTunes. Till next time, keep taking care of business.